Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse number 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, The prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. Father, send your spirit to anoint every heart here this morning to have ears to hear. Hearts to respond, wills to respond, minds to understand, so that we would be transformed by your glorious grace into the image of your Holy Son. We ask these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. A recent survey, uh, recent as in uh, 2019, by the Pew Research Group found that in the United States over the past 10 years, there has been a significant drop in church attendance. A drop that clocks in at about 10%. Doesn't sound like too much, right? I mean, when you go to buy a a TV at the store and there's a 10% off coupon, you really don't think that's all that great. 10%, though, over 10 years, that's one percentage point a year. And in a country of 330 million or so people, you do the math. We're talking about millions of people not going to church. This number is down from 54% in 2009 of Americans who attended religious services at least once a month. We're not talking about you and I who are here week after week. We're talking about a 10% drop, 54% beginning with of those who just come at least once a month, down to 45% in 2019. The same survey found that the number of Americans who identify, I hate that word, what do you identify as? 
the number of Americans who identify as Christian also dropped significantly during the same period from 78% down to 65%. That's 13% drop. Now we know, brothers and sisters, that 78% of this nation has never been Christian, at least in the way the Bible describes it. Most who identify as Christians as are they're, they're just merely professing Christians whose worldview and belief system differ very little from the unbelievers around them. Those who profess no religious faith at all. The survey also discovered that the number of what they call religious nuns, have you heard of that? Not none as in the Catholic nuns, but none as in N-O-N-E-S, the number of what we call religious nuns, those who have no religious identity whatsoever, that number climbed over the past 10 years by 30 million. And all of this data can be found at pewresearch.org in an article titled, in the U.S., Decline of Christianity Continues at a Rapid Pace, published in October of 2019. And after COVID, we have no idea what's going to, what the church is going to look like when this is done, if it ever is. And of course, we've known for years now, we've seen these articles, the surveys, the statistics that the young people in our churches have been walking away from the faith at a rate of about 70%, 7 out of 10, that's astronomical. But the numbers that I just gave you are from the adult population in the U.S. Now numbers, brothers and sisters, can be misrepresented. They can be manipulated. They can be frightening. <laughs> so we shouldn't necessarily jump to radical illogical conclusions based off of surveys and statistics. The Holy Spirit of God revival is not subject to our surveys, our statistics, and our numbers. These things can change overnight. But one thing is certain, and you all see it, you know it. We are in America increasingly becoming and indeed already are, a nation of unbelief that has rejected and is rejecting Christ and His gospel. And so we are not altogether unlike the city of Nazareth here <laughs> that we read about in our text today who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark tells us in verse 1 that Jesus and His disciples, after some ministry near the Sea of Galilee, they went back to His hometown. This is Nazareth. A very small, very insignificant village. A population of probably no more than 500 people at the time of Jesus. It's about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, which is where Jesus made his sort of home base for his ministry, where Peter lived. But now Jesus goes home. 
And verse 2 says that on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Those gathered in the synagogue that day were amazed at his wisdom, at his teaching. And they started asking questions among themselves in verses 2 and 3. And here we see really the first main point of our message that our questions about Jesus reveal our hearts. What kind of questions do you have this morning about Jesus, friends? Our questions reveal our hearts. Verse 2, they were saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? Matthew, Matthew's version of the account says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Speaking of Joseph. The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph. Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So Mark records five questions here. Five. These people asked. And friends, read them over carefully, closely again. Their questions are dripping with suspicion and skepticism. They won't even address Jesus by his name. They call him in verse 2, this man. They are skeptical of His wisdom, of His power. Where does it come from? How does this man's hands perform such mighty works? You feel the cold suspicion? You're picking this up in their words. And with each question, Mark, as it were, is pulling back the curtain on their skeptical unbelieving hearts. We know this man, they said. Is he not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now friends, this was most unusual. (laughs) In this culture, to refer to a, a man by the name of his mother. In fact, it was usually only done when either the mother was more widely known than the father, or the child was born illegitimately. And indeed, friends, this is exactly what I believe these skeptical townspeople were were insinuating. They knew precisely who Jesus was. They knew who His earthly father was. They knew who his mother was, and no doubt, likely, they were remembering the scandalous rumors that surrounded a young virgin girl named Mary about 30 years earlier, who became mysteriously pregnant. And this man was her son. Now he's teaching in our synagogue? Their questions deny his unique identity. They presuppose that the wisdom and the power of Jesus did not come from his person, 
They did not recognize him as from God and certainly didn't recognize the displays of his divinity as the Son of God. His own disciples, indeed, were starting, just starting to connect those dots that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. These Nazarenes didn't even recognize Jesus as the great teacher and as the great prophet that he was. Even like many other religions will do today, they'll recognize Jesus as a great teacher. Oh, he was a great prophet, but he was not the Son of God. But they didn't even recognize him as a great teacher, a prophet. To them, he was just ordinary, a carpenter, just one of them. And so the end of verse 3 says, They took offense at him. What right does this man, who is one of us, we know where he came from. We don't even know if we don't even know if he was legitimately born. And he's in our synagogue teaching now. They took offense. You ever been offended at a message, at a sermon? at a preacher, an evangelist. The word offense here in the New Testament language means that they were stumbling. The Greek word is skandalizo, scandal. You hear that in that? They were repelled, disgusted. They were revolted by Jesus. They stumbled over his person and his work. And their questions revealed the inner workings of their unbelieving hearts. And friends, I find it rather surprising (laughs) that Jesus left their skeptical questions unanswered. I mean, if someone comes in here and assaults just me as an individual or you as an individual assaults your character, Who are you? Are we just going to be silent? And not reply and not answer? But Jesus did not offer a defense of himself or his identity. And so we find one of the main takeaways from this passage in his silence. Jesus will not be subject to the scrutiny of unbelieving sinners. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus, He straight calls us out of our unbelief, into repentance, into faith in Him. He calls us to leave everything behind and to follow Him. In John 8, 24, listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to Jews. He says, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. And yes, you believe, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, I am the one sent by God with salvation, you will die in your sins. Luke 13, 5, he says this. <laughs> I don't know where these guys get, you know, we, we're painting a picture of Jesus in our culture today. I don't know where they get it from. 
Because it's not the Jesus of Scripture. Because in Luke 13, he says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perish. Jesus does not come to us this morning, brothers and sisters, and ask us to believe in Him. He commands it. He demands it. Believe in me or die. And in all the rest of the New Testament, the apostles never present Jesus before us for our scrutiny as if we could just examine the evidence for his truth claims and then make an informed decision as to whether or not we believe in him whether or not he is who he says he is. And this, friends, is where I really struggle. Bear with me here. This is where I really struggle with some of the apologetic ministries and methods of today. We see apologists left and right. They have these great video internet ministries. and I don't want to discount them. I don't want to cast shade upon them. But I worry about it because we craft this finely tuned evidential case for Christ and then we go back and forth with skeptics trying to answer all of, all of the, the fanciful objections of their unbelieving hearts. I mean, just consider the language of some of the most popular apologetics books out there right now. I'm thinking of two, The Case for Christ. Perhaps you've heard of it. Perhaps you've read it. Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ. Or the other one, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Friends, this is courtroom language. A courtroom where the Son of God is on trial where the fallible and fallen reason and intellect of sinful man sits on the bench and we want to put the Holy Lord of glory on trial so that we are the final judge of Christ. We are the judge of His claims. Is He, is he who He said He is? No way, brothers and sisters. Let us be done with that. Jesus Christ will not be subject to our skeptical scrutiny. He will not be filtered through the grid of our intellect. In February of 2014, the uh, infamous... I I don't even like talking about this guy, but it's an illustration. Remember I told you last week I struggled with that illustration? 2014... Bill Nye, of the popular TV show, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Anybody ever heard of him? Yeah, some of you. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Well, he debated uh, creation and evolution with, with Ken Ham, the you know, founder of Answers in Genesis, Creation Museum, the Ark, all that. At one point during the debate... Bill and I said this, quote, Show me one piece of evidence and I would change my mind immediately. 
End quote. Of course, we know that is a blatant lie. And friends, so does he. No evidence is going to convince him. Ironically, just last week, Bill Nye, the science guy, who's not actually a scientist, he has a degree in engineering. Is that, is that a scientist? I don't know. Bill Nye, the science guy, made headlines yet once again, claiming that there was, quote, overwhelming evidence that there is no afterlife. There's no life after death, end quote. But it's interesting, I thought, how he could find overwhelming evidence for no afterlife, but zero evidence for God, for creation, for Jesus Christ. It's funny how that works, isn't it? He would have fit right at home in Nazareth. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 calls it the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. But you know, friends, there is no amount of evidence that could change Bill Nye's mind because his heart is willingly and stubbornly blind to truth. He is firmly committed to his unbelieving presuppositions. And the remedy for unbelief is not evidence. It is the hammer of Holy Ghost conviction that comes through the clear and bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that shatters our unbelief. That, friends, is where God has put the power of conversion, not in evidence, not in arguments, but in the gospel. That's where it's at. I'm not saying that we should just throw out the evidential apologetics. By the way, if you know anything about apologetics, you know there are more than one method, one one approach. There's evidential, there's classical, there's presuppositional. That's the camp I fall in. Evidential apologetics are helpful to us as believers. It strengthens our faith. But friends, we can get all of our questions answered and it still not be enough. Because our problem is not evidence, our problem is unbelief. Just like these Nazarenes here in our text today. Our questions reveal our hearts. What questions are you asking about Jesus this morning? Are you expecting Him to... Filter himself through your grid of fallen human reason and intellect? Or do you hear? Do you have ears to hear by God's sovereign grace? Are you hearing his call to repent and believe? And so secondly, we see in this passage, in his response, in Jesus' response, it reveals the tragic Danger of unbelief. The tragic danger of unbelief. Jesus saw straight through the skeptical questions of the Nazarenes here. 
He saw straight into the, the unbelief of their darkened hearts. And his response, brothers and sisters, should be alarming to us today. It should scare us. Consider what he did. He did not consider what he did not do. He didn't launch into a seminar to give all the evidence for his identity as the Messiah. He didn't give an altar call and sing just as I am 12 times to manipulate their emotions into making a decision for Christ. <laughs> no, friends. What did Jesus do? He marveled at them. Look at verse 4 again. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. Verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people. There's always a remnant. Okay? He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus responds to their unbelief with this proverbial statement. He says, a prophet is without honor among his own people. If he goes somewhere else, he'll be honored. But at home, not so much. You know, it's funny. Uh, listen, I struggled with this illustration. I'm, I'm trying to, to be transparent with you today. I think most preachers can somewhat, to some degree, identify with what Jesus is talking about here. A prophet is without honor in his own country, in his own home, his own hometown. There are, there are times that after church, some of you will come up to me after the service and say, Pastor, that was, that was a great sermon. Thank you. And of course, I am uncomfortably but graciously humbled Although sometimes I wonder if it's not a reverse psychology that you guys sometimes try to, you're really trying to tell me to do better. <laughs> I don't know. Kind of like when a southerner says, bless your heart. <laughs> Friends, when a southerner says, bless your heart, find the exit. <laughs> it's not a compliment. <laughs> I am encouraged either way. But, but, you know, I've found over the years that my wife and kids aren't so impressed with me. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that you know I yelled at somebody the night before, but they don't usually think I'm all that impressive. <laughs> anyway, here Jesus is in his hometown, among his own people, and they aren't really impressed. Listen to what the great 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle says. Never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For 30 years the Son of God resided in this town and went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years he walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was all lost upon them. 
They were not ready to believe the gospel when the Lord came among them and taught in their synagogue. They would not believe that one whose face they knew so well and who had lived so long eating and drinking and dressing like one of themselves had any right to claim their attention. They were offended at Him. Friends, this was tragic unbelief. This was unbelievable unbelief. And with their rejection of Him full on, on full display, Jesus just healed a few people. And Mark says in verse 5 that He could do no mighty work there. Let me say that. I must say that again. He could do no mighty work there. And we need to be very careful not to misunderstand what this means. As if in some way Jesus was limited by their unbelief. He was not. Though that is exactly what many believe. Popular megachurch pastor, you probably, maybe you've heard of him, Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been past his church many times. I was born and raised down there in that area. Thousands. Campuses all over the Carolinas. I think there's even one in Virginia. Stephen Furtick, in an August 2018 sermon on this very passage, by the way, made this statement, quote, Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief, end quote. And of course, his Christ dishonoring words were followed by the amens and applause of thousands in his congregation. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. But friends, I'm here to tell you today, that is absolutely not what this verse means. Because if Jesus cannot override our unbelief, then none of us would ever be saved. Friends, this is not the inability of Jesus to override unbelief. This is the judgment of Jesus on unbelief. This is when you're in that conversation with someone about something important. And you're going back and forth and they just stubbornly refuse to hear you or understand what you're saying. And you just shake your head and walk away, leaving them in their foolishness. Friends, that's what Jesus is doing here. He is shaking His head at Nazareth's unbelief. And his response to his home, hometown, his people, Nazareth, shows us the tragic danger of unbelief. Because get this, friends. Jesus leaves them. He leaves them. Look one last time with me at the end of verse 6. He went about the villages teaching. 
So he leaves his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes to the surrounding villages, teaching and preaching the gospel of his kingdom, looking for someone who will believe. By the way, speaking of the tragedy of unbelief, did you know that today, Nazareth, this same town, much bigger today, but Nazareth is known right now in the present as the Arab capital of Israel with a population that is 70% Islamic. Let that sit on you for a moment. This is the hometown of Jesus Christ. And it is the largest Arab city in Israel today. Friends, this is what happens when we turn away from the Son of God in unbelief. He abandons us to the idolatrous false gods of our vain imaginations. I'm trembling this morning. Are you? Is this what will happen to the United States of America as our culture sinks deeper and deeper into a climate of unbelief and rejection of truth? Is this what has already happened to us? Has Jesus abandoned us to the false idols and the false gods of our own vain imaginations, the idols of critical social justice? the health and wealth gospel, evolutionary theory and the religion of scientism, where science is all. Atheism, the LGBTQ plus movement. These are the things that America values right now. These are the things that America believes in right now. Not the Christ of Scripture. Hear me this morning, brothers and sisters. This is the last time that Jesus ever went to Nazareth. He's already, I mean, I know it's hard to tell this by, you know, we're only six chapters into Mark. Jesus is already two years into his ministry. And he will never in the New Testament, never come back to the people that he grew up with. This is the day that Nazareth committed spiritual suicide. Again, Bishop Ryle is so helpful. He says this, Unbelief is so suicidal and unreasonable a sin that even the Son of God regards it with surprise. He marveled at it. I'm begging us this morning, every single one of us, whether you're here in this sanctuary or watching online, do not commit spiritual suicide. Don't do it. When the Son of God marvels at your unbelieving heart, you are in trouble, friends. I wonder, would He marvel at any of us here today? Some who sit here week after week, doing 
our religious duty, but walk out of this sacred place confident in our own righteousness. Maybe trusting in baptism. Trusting in church membership or church giving or church attendance. All the while, just a little too familiar with Jesus. Unwilling to embrace the fullness of His person and work. Are we like the Nazarenes this morning, friends? Stubborn in our unbelief. Again, friends, please hear me. Unbelief is not just the root of atheism, paganism, or false religion. Unbelief is also the root of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Unbelief is the root of professing evangelical Christians, Baptists, who claim to follow Christ but deny the unpopular countercultural truths and demands of His Word. But Jesus is here this morning through His Word, confronting us with the reality of His person and of His work. Friends, do not treat the Son of God as familiar. Don't say, we know this man. Do not turn away from him in unbelief. Do not leave this place thinking of Christ the same way as when you came in. And so I wonder this morning, are we among those Nazarenes who know Jesus all too well, but don't know him at all? Will you submit to Him this morning in repentance and faith? Or will you leave this morning in unbelief so that He walks away from you shaking His head at your unbelief? Dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, I dare not assume that everyone under the sound of my voice from week to week is a born-again believer. I know the opposite is true. Forget whatever you think about everyone who was in here this morning gathered under this roof, our hearts, our lives, whatever you think. There are unbelievers among us every Sunday. And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, wrapped in human flesh. He lived... A perfect, absolutely flawless life. The likes of which we can scarcely imagine. We have no idea what it's like to go even one hour without sin. Most of us have sinned since 11 o'clock this morning. An ill thought of someone else. A lustful imagination. Some other minor transgression against an infinitely holy God that is worthy of eternal condemnation under His wrath. That's us. But friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is here 
through His Word, through His Spirit, to conquer our unbelief and to capture our hearts in repentance and faith so that we acknowledge the cosmic treason of our sin and flee to His bloody, splintered cross. Just clinging to it as our only hope. Friend, is that you this morning? Is that you? Oh, by the sovereign grace of God, may it be every single one of us. Friends, turn today and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we approach your throne not in our own unrighteousness, not in our own righteousness, but by and through the righteousness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in His name that any here this morning, perhaps who, maybe this is their first time here, I I don't know. Maybe this is their third time here. Maybe this is their 3,000th time here. I have no idea. God, by Your sovereign grace, Convict our hearts of our unbelief. And may we not be like Nazareth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.